You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, What is it with conservatives who don't want to pay taxes? I don't mean con men. Of course, con men don't want to pay their taxes. Of course, Donald Trump, con man, didn't pay his taxes and got away with not paying his taxes for years, according to a blockbuster report in Monday's New York Times. The Times somehow got its hands on two decades worth of, quote, tax return data. So not Trump's tax returns, not the tax returns he promised to release in 2015 – like all other presidential candidates have done for decades and then never did release, but reams and reams of data, two decades worth of Trump's tax filings and the filings of the hundreds of companies that make up his quote-unquote business organization. The scams, the dodges, the shell companies, the felonies, it's all there in the New York Times and the incompetence. Donald Trump has inherited and lost billions of dollars and borrowed and lost billions of dollars and is right now more than a billion dollars in debt to who we don't know. The president of the United States is a crook and a bad one and his kids are crooks too. In a debate in 2016 with Hillary Clinton, remember her? She's the person who could have been president and wouldn't have appointed three anti-choice judges to the Supreme Court if it weren't for the Electoral College and all those third-party tantrum throwers. Hillary Clinton, who, when she tried to warn us about Trump appointing three and possibly four justices to the Supreme Court, was accused of scaremongering and told to shut up. Remember her? Can we be scared now? Anyway, in 2016, Hillary Clinton accused Donald Trump of not having paid federal income taxes. Of course I don't pay taxes, Trump shot back, because, and I'm quoting, I'm smart. A man who wants to nuke hurricanes is a lot of things, including dangerous if he has the ability to nuke hurricanes, but he's not smart. Trump paid smart people to hide his incompetence, to hide his money, to cook his books and lie to the IRS. And it turns out Clinton was wrong. Donald Trump did pay federal income taxes in 2016, $750. He paid the same amount in 2017. But our billionaire, supposedly billionaire president, did not pay a penny in federal taxes for 10 of the 15 years before that. 750 bucks. The average registered nurse, as the Biden campaign quickly pointed out yesterday, pays $10,000 a year in federal income taxes on average. All right, so Trump is a crook and now we have proof and it's not going to make any difference to his supporters. They know he's a liar and a con artist and they don't care. And I get it. His lies drive the libs crazy, and that's all they care about, owning the libs. But here's what I don't get. Conservatives are the patriots, supposedly. They go on and on about how much they love this country, but they don't want to pay for it. They love the military, but they don't want to pay for it. All those cool weapons systems taking care of the troops don't want to pay for it. They love roads. Couldn't live out there in the exurbs in those blood-red, wide-open rural areas without those roads. But they don't want to pay for them. They love cops, particularly cops who brutalize black people. But they don't want to pay for them. They love firemen, but they don't want to pay for them. They love sitting in red states that are subsidized by taxpayers in blue states. But they don't want to pay for them. 
Oh, and do they ever love Mount Rushmore as we so recently saw? They love Mount Rushmore so much they'll risk dying in a pandemic to go sit in front of it while Trump runs his lying mouth in front of them. But they don't want to pay for the National Park Service that maintains it. Joe Biden got a ton of grief in 2008 when he said paying your taxes, paying your fair share was patriotic. He was right then and he's right now. And here's hoping Biden throws it in Trump's face tonight during their first presidential debate. You know, it occurs to me that I've never played any tape or clips of Joe Biden speaking on my podcast. So many of Donald fucking Trump. So I'm going to play one now. This is Joe Biden reemphasizing his point that paying your taxes is patriotic in an interview on CNN about Donald Trump not paying his taxes in 2016. Since when does somebody who lives at the top of the world in the penthouse overlooking the world be in a position where he doesn't feel any obligation at all to pay any federal income tax, to support the military, to support education, to support our foreign policy? Since when is that a patriotic thing to do? Can you imagine any other president, any other president existed to ever say that and be proud of that? Back to my point. Conservatives insist they love the country more, more than anybody else, more than the libs, and they hate paying taxes, and they admire a man who broke laws to avoid paying his. I'm sorry, but you cannot claim to love your country. You shouldn't be allowed to claim you love your country if you're not willing to pay your taxes, just like you can't claim to love your kids more than your ex-wife while refusing to pay your child support. If you won't pay your child support, you really got to shut up about how much you love your kids because it's a lie. And if you won't pay your taxes, you know, you really got to shut the fuck up about how much you love your country because that's a lie too. All right, coming up on the Magnum, Savage Lovecast that you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com. Twice as much show, more guests, more calls, more questions, more answers, no ads. Tristan Taramino, friend of the show, is back to talk with us about, I hope you're sitting down, anal prolapse. That's on the Magnum and in the micro. Tons of your questions, lots of my answers, and also ads coming up on today's show. Hey, Dan, 29-year-old cis bi female from Florida. I'm calling because my mother is coming to visit me next week. She lives across the state, and I came out to her as bi about a year ago. And she is a devout Catholic. The initial feedback I got from her when I came out was surprise. I remember listening to an episode of yours where you mentioned that if the initial reaction from a family member isn't complete disgust, that's the worst it's going to be. And you're on your way up from there, hopefully. My mother is still in my life. We talk regularly. However... I can't help the feeling of still being judged by her. I feel like I can't talk about my dating life. I feel like I can't talk about um, LGBT issues without a certain degree of scorn from her. Thus, I have been bringing this up frequently in therapy. I go weekly and I have a plan to ask my mother how she's currently feeling about our current relationship at this point in time. I am not sure how to phrase these questions and this discussion. I'm looking for some tips and looking to 
help my mother feel comfortable with the person that I truly am at this point. I'm out with everyone else in my life, except my extended family. They are also very Catholic, very Trump, Trumpy people. And uh, yeah, so just looking for some direction there. Your mom is a devout Catholic. So was mine. What a crazy coincidence. Mine was a devout Catholic as well. And I came out to her in the very early 80s and she got over it uh, and got over it relatively quickly, kind of an accelerated timetable for that era so many decades ago. But she got over it. But she got over it because I insisted, because I forced the conversation you know, when I first came out to my mother, uh, she told me that she never wanted to meet a boyfriend. I was not allowed to have boyfriends in the house. And that bothered me. And that seemed unfair because my sister could have her boyfriend over and I couldn't have my boyfriend over. And this went on for a while, even after, you know, the first shock of me coming out and my mother, you know, telling me she still loved me and, you know, but she needed some time to adjust. But it, it went on and eventually I had to have a conversation with my mother where I was just like, why is it not a problem that that Laura's boyfriend is here and it would be a problem if my boyfriend were to be here, to be in the house, in the family home? And the issue was sex and how uncomfortable she was with me giving blowjobs or having sex with men. And I, you know, we had this conversation a block from our house on the Metra rail platform when she was going to work. I remember it vividly where I just said to her, you know, Laura gives her boyfriend blowjobs. I know it. You know it. How come when Laura's boyfriend is over, you don't think about those blowjobs or see those blowjobs? But the idea of me having a boyfriend over, all you can see is me sucking his dick. What is up with that? My mom narrowed her eyes. She looked at me and she said, the blowjobs Laura gives to her boyfriend could lead to marriage and family and children and the blowjobs you give your boyfriend can never go anywhere, go nowhere. And I said to her, whose fault is that? Whose fault is it that gay people can't marry or have children? It's not our fault. It's your fault. It's the fault of straight people that we, at least then, at least in the West, lived such circumscribed lives. And that confrontation helped my mother push past her discomfort with guys that I might be giving blowjobs to or getting blowjobs from coming to the house, being in the house. She came around on that issue because I forced that conversation. You came out to your mother and it doesn't sound like you've done the work of having those difficult conversations. It sounds like you've sidestepped them. It's not that your mother has expressed rapidly biphobic or homophobic views to you. You just sense discomfort when the topic comes up and you talk about this perhaps at great length with your therapist. You need to risk having these conversations with your mother about her discomfort. You need to address it head on. And if I could do it as a gay teenager in Chicago in the early 1980s, you can do it as an adult by woman with a devout Catholic mother just as I had a devout Catholic mother now in 2020. And just go to your mom and say, ever since I came out to you, it feels like it's an issue between us. Maybe I'm projecting. Maybe you're just picking up on 
my, you know, discomfort at the thought that you might be discomforted, that this might be a, an awkward conversation with you. And if that's what's going on here, we just need to like link arms and leap past it together. But if there's some discomfort, if there's things you need to talk about or process, we can talk about them. We can process them together. I will hear you out and I will not hold a grudge. If there's something you need to say that then I can push back against as I push back against my mother. And I do think that's an important part of the coming out process is giving your parents permission and time and loving them, you know, setting the example, loving them unconditionally the way you would like them to love you. I didn't stop loving my mother when she was being unfair to me. We loved each other through that process, through that growth. The growth was only possible because we still loved each other actively. So say to your mother, you can say anything. Don't self-censor and I won't blow up at you. And I may we may disagree and you know I I may point out some flaws in your logic. Uh, you may end up saying to your mother something very similar to what I said to my mother. Whose fault is that? If she has some issues about bi people and the way bi people live in this world, bi people didn't create the world. Just as gay people didn't write the rules that we were forced to live under. Uh, back when I had that confrontation with my mother on the Metra train platform in Chicago when I was a teenager. So talk to your therapist one more time. You've talked to your sex and relationship advice professional now. Talk to your therapist one last time. Steal yourself for this conversation. Stop thinking your mother might be uncomfortable and then letting yourself feel uncomfortable and ask your mother if she is uncomfortable with your sexuality and ask her what you can do, what she needs to do, what she needs to hear to get comfortable with your sexuality. And recognize it may take some time. The first time my mother met a boyfriend, the first time my mother met some dude who was sodomizing me, it was awkward. And we got through it. You can too. Hi, Dan. I'm calling about my sister. Me and my sister are five years apart, and she's my best friend. My sister is getting married next year. It was pushed back due to COVID. The thing I'm calling about is her relationship with her fiancé. Uh, my sister met this guy probably about seven years ago on Tinder, and they started to date. It was always, we always thought it was kind of a weird relationship because uh, it was a lot of texting, not a whole lot of meeting up, so they did meet up. Uh, about three years in, my sister finds out that he'd been living with his girlfriend. Basically, they broke up for a little bit and then pretty quickly got back together. His other girlfriend left him. Uh, it was a big blow up. So basically, after that, everyone in her life was like, you shouldn't do this. You shouldn't do this. You shouldn't do this. She moved in with him right away. And they've been going now for about four years. Basically, a lowdown on him. Well, he had this second girlfriend, which was, I mean, pretty bad. He doesn't work. While she works and pays for everything, he just smokes weed, hangs out with his friends. He drives his car, even though her car, even though she he can't be insured on it. Uh, he's rude at family gatherings. Last Christmas, he spent the entire time on the phone at the table. When someone asked him about it, he had a tantrum and stormed out. Basically, he he once told me that he always asks my family for expensive gifts because we, he knows we all have money. There's just the list could go on and on. My question is, my sister's wedding, I'm the maid of honor. And I, to be honest, at this point, I don't really want to be involved with the wedding. I think she's making the biggest mistake of her life, legally attaching herself to this guy. I don't know if I am just 
I should just get over myself or if it's worth it to tell her that. My sister has suffered from a low self-esteem her entire life. And really, a lot of the times when I try to broach subjects like this, instead of it really like helping and I feel like it be constructive, I feel like it just makes her sad. I don't know if she'll have the courage ever to leave him, no matter how much support she gets from me and some of her good friends who are really good friends to her. I would just like your insight on what you think I should do, if I should keep broaching the subject, even though I think that it really hurts her, or if I should just be supportive, or if there's another way I'm not thinking about that could maybe help her. I think you can speak your mind. I think you do have a duty to warn here while also still being supportive of your sister. I think the best way to be supportive of your sister is to right now, before she ties herself to this loser legally, going to her, having a little intervention, maybe bringing along a couple of her friends and really telling her how you feel, why this is such a terrible idea, why you think she deserves better than this dude. And then go to the goddamn wedding. If it makes your sister feel better for you to be maid of honor and if you already agreed to be maid of honor and you've already been fitted for that fucking dress, maybe be maid of honor, be there for her even if you disapprove of him on that day. And I know I just said to the previous caller that, you know, I'm not a big fan of the idea that people can change. People often stay the same, especially shitty people when they get their way over and over again. And it sounds like this shitty guy has gotten his way over and over again. They're unlikely to change. Maybe he'll change. But yeah, no, I think kind of like what Michelle Obama said about the presidency, that it doesn't uh, change who you are. It reveals who you are. I think the same is often true of marriage and long-term relationships, that it often reveals who you are. You become more the person that you've already demonstrated yourself to be to others. And this guy has already demonstrated himself to be a very deeply shitty, rude, inconsiderate, lying sack of shit. And you need to say all of those things to your sister. As hard as that may be to say or will be to say, as hard as that definitely will be for her to hear, you need to say it. And then in good conscience, you can go to the fucking wedding. Just make sure as a part of the intervention, you tell your sister that if she decides to marry this guy anyway, she still has your love and support. You're not withdrawing from her so that if when the time comes that she realizes she's made a terrible mistake – She knows she can come to you and you have already promised her, as I've advised other callers, you've promised her that if that day comes and she wants out of this relationship and needs help finding a lawyer and getting a divorce, you will say loving and supportive and constructive and helpful things. You will not say, I told you so. Hi, Dan. I'm a cisgender bisexual woman living in the Midwest. I'm calling because I had this uh, random stranger start following me on Instagram and liking and commenting on my photos, which is fine. Um, But then when I went to go look at his page, he had a picture of me and Lady Gaga. Like those were the only two pictures and it was who wore it better because I guess we both have blue hair. So I reached out to him and I was like, hey, do I know you? And he was like, no, I'm just a fan. If that was creepy, like, let me know and I can take it down. And I was like, 
yeah, it's a little creepy, um, but I don't mind like having a fan. So he took it down and he's been really respectful of my boundaries and we've kept talking back and forth. He has asked me to send him nudes and that he would love to pay me, quote unquote, tons of money for them. I'm not cool with that right now. I sent him to one of my friends who's a sex worker um, and was like, hey, this is like a girl that has like a similar look and vibe to her if you want to support her. Otherwise, like, I'm not going to give you any personalized content. He did say that he has like screenshot in my Instagram stories um, of me doing yoga and other stuff that he likes to jerk off to and... He asked if that's okay, which I like that he's asking and respecting my boundaries. I told him that if he wants to jerk off to the content that I normally post on my Instagram, that's fine, but he should pay me because I'm not going to just leave money on the table, I guess. So I, he gave me his PayPal and I sent a request for 60 bucks just to see like how serious he was and he paid me it. So now I'm sort of like in trying to figure out like how much is like a reasonable like request to uh, charge someone to jerk off to like your normal Instagram content. I don't, again, I don't know who this guy is. I wish I knew that he was like some really rich lawyer and could charge him like a whole lot more, but he doesn't have Facebook or Instagram or LinkedIn, any sort of thing. And I was even able to like look up his name there's nothing out there. So if you have any advice, if you think this is sketchy or I don't know, how much would you charge for someone to jerk off to you? You have very different boundaries than most people. Most people wouldn't want some stranger, some anonymous stranger on the internet to ask them if it was okay to jerk off to the pictures that they were sharing on Instagram or WhatsApp or TikTok or wherever. Most people who post thirst traps understand that there will be people out there in the world who whack off looking at those pictures. Even if you're posting things that aren't necessarily thirst traps, you can't control how other people are going to enjoy the content that you float out into the world for free. And the last thing most people would want is to hear from someone asking their permission to jerk off to those pictures. Most people would experience that as kind of a boundary violation, not respect for boundaries. I'm, I'm, I'm try trying to shame you or anything. You know, you your boundaries are a little bit different. You appreciate if someone's going to whack off to your Instagram account, that person asking if it's okay with you. But that makes you a, a little different. I just didn't want anybody else out there listening who might be whacking off to somebody's Instagram account without their permission, without having you know, asked for their consent not to rush to their DMs to bother people whose Instagram photos they've been repurposing for masturbatory reasons uh, and ask them for their permission because most wouldn't react uh, as positively as you did, caller. So what do you charge? He obviously gets off on you knowing that he's jacking off to your pictures and maybe he's into a little bit of financial domination and putting a little bit of money into your account enhances the experience for him. So what do you charge? And you're not charging him for bespoke content. You're not creating pictures just for him. He's just suggesting a kind of honor system, tax or tribute where he pays you when he enjoys your 
photos. Well, you asked for 60 bucks, you got 60 bucks. It was a frictionless request. He didn't push back. He didn't say, oh, it seems like a lot of money, but here it is. So obviously 60 bucks wasn't too much for him. I would advise you perhaps to make something of a game of it where you can find his limit and tell him that, you know, if you want to be playful, if you want to be sexy about it, he might appreciate this. You could tell him that you want an extra 10 bucks or 20 bucks, that it was 60 this time. The next time he whacks off looking at your Instagram, you want 80, then you want 100, then 120. That will add up quickly. And at some point, you know, maybe when it hits $500, maybe when it hits $1,000, jacking off to your Instagram account, at least being on the honor system and paying you when he jacks off to your Instagram account will be too rich for his blood. But the only way to find that ceiling, the only way to find out where his limit is, is to uh, push at it. You could also ask. He asked you a direct question about whether it was okay to jack off to your photos on Instagram or wherever it is you're posting them. You could ask him what he thinks he should pay you. And you could tell him when you ask him that you want it to – mean something. You want it to not hurt, but you want him to feel it. And if $60 is nothing for him, well, then he's paying you nothing to jerk off to your photos. If he's a wealthy lawyer or if he's Jeff Bezos, well, Yahtzee, maybe you'll get a couple of grand each time he jacks off to your photos. Hi, Dan. This is a cisgender woman on the East Coast. I feel like I snooped but I don't think I, I was Googling my dad and I found his YouTube and he has subscriptions to some <laughs> videos of women like in bathing suits moving around and I just feel bad because it's easily accessible. So I want to do something because it's on the internet if you Google my dad's name. Please help. It could be so much worse. All the things that your dad could be jacking off to on the internet, finding out that he's jacking off to or enjoying, maybe just enjoying women in bathing suits moving around, you should count your blessings. It will make the conversation you're going to have with your father a little less awkward than it might be. You know, imagine some of the stuff out there on the internet, a lot of the sex accounts, a lot of the dirty videos rattling around. And just imagine if you had to go to your dad and talk about his vor fetish or his foot fetish, but you just have to go to your dad and talk to him about his standard issue pretty ladies in swimming suits moving around. Interest? Not even a fetish. I wouldn't even call that a fetish. Yeah. Lucky you. Count your blessings. Go to your dad. Tell him he probably needs to pull down this account because if somebody Googles him as you did for shits and giggles, you don't even understand why you Googled him or you didn't share with me why you Googled him, they're going to find out that he is a heterosexual man with an interest in scantily clad ladies who are moving around. Not that there's any shame in that, but you know – could be awkward if he's doing a business deal and somebody wants to do their due diligence and they stumble across this scandalous YouTube account of his. You can have a conversation with him about internet safety, about creating an anonymous account uh, after he yanks down the account that you stumbled over. And at the end of that conversation with your dad, promise him you will never Google him again. Your curiosity your morbid curiosity about where your father's been going on the internet, hopefully 
has been satisfied. Hi, Dan. So I just listened to your most recent podcast where you mentioned the statistic that roughly half of all marriages stay together even after one of the partners transitioned. And I thought of the very small sample size of the the handful of of couples that I know that that's happened in, and it occurred to me that they were all, that all of them were either like lesbian couples or or heterosexual couples where where the man then then transitioned to a woman. But I was I was just curious if how common it is for like in traditionally heterosexual couples, if the woman transitions to a man for them to stay together. The trans uh, writer, Jennifer Boylan, we met at the Aspen Ideas Festival. It was sort of a glamorous gig for me, perhaps way above my pay grade, my usual station in life. Uh, And during our talks, she said that she believed or she referenced a study that roughly 50 percent of Opposite sex relationships survive after one partner transitions. Most of those marriages, roughly 50 percent, not most, half, uh, make it through the transition, survive, and the couple stays together. But you're right. Most instances, including Jennifer Boylan's own marriage, most instances where that is cited, most of the examples pointed to are – Marriages where a male married a female and then later in life, the male came out as a a woman and transitioned, made the transition. And there aren't many examples that I'm aware of where the wife or the the female in the relationship in an opposite sex relationship came out as trans and that marriage survived. In the few instances over the years where I've heard from a man whose wife was transitioning, whose wife came out as a man – they were leaving the relationship. They wanted out of the relationship because they didn't want to be in relationships with guys because they were straight men. And so just going off that – those anecdotes and anecdotes ain't data, it seems to me that it would be less likely for a relationship to survive a transition if the female in an opposite sex relationship transitioned to male. That may have something to do with – um. And I think, you know, zooming out, we often talk about how female sexuality is more fluid. A lot more women are are bisexual. Even a lot of heterosexual identified women are bisexual, even often controversially because I take their calls. Some lesbian identified women are bisexual. That may contribute to the likelihood that a marriage, an opposite sex marriage, may survive the transition if it is the husband transitioning and not the wife transitioning because – Men and male sexuality, men's sexual orientations tend to be a bit more fixed, a bit less fluid. Male bisexuality, while common, isn't as common as female bisexuality. There are roughly, I believe if I remember this correctly, roughly three to four times as many bisexual women as by men. So maybe just the odds are with the opposite sex couples where the husband transitions and the odds are not with the opposite sex couple where the wife transitions. If anyone out there listening is aware of any studies or has lived experience in this area, we would love to hear from you. Hi, Dan. This is a couple calling from Australia. I have a question on behalf of my partner. We were just boning and I asked him how the state of his butthole is because it's been like a long-term thing that his butthole is sometimes okay and sometimes not okay. 
um, context, a few years ago he was in the States and had sex with this guy in the toilets of a nightclub whose name was Sergio and he bent my partner over and fucked him and it was fun I think and apparently oh he's showing he's holding his hands to show the girth right now he describes it as like a Bavarian can cock I don't know how much lube was used anyway it's still causing problems with his bum sometimes sometimes he can put things in there and it's fine sometimes it's not Anyway, we're just wondering what he should do about it because I've told him he should go to the doctor and he is too embarrassed to get a GP to look at his butthole. But we have a feeling he's got like anal fissures. He doesn't have hemorrhoids. He sometimes has in the past, but not recently. But sometimes it hurts, sometimes it doesn't. He says right now it hurts to wipe and it's like itchy. How do you heal anal fissures and what should we do about it? Because we want to peg more, but it's not always possible. I'm wondering if a Bavarian beer can cock differs in a significant way from, say, a Prussian beer can cock or a Hanoverian beer can cock or a Silesian beer can cock. Uh, good for you. You guys have a sexually adventurous relationship. I hope the sex that he had with Sergio in the bathroom at the nightclub was safe, even if they weren't using lube. I hope he was using condoms with this near stranger. The solution to your partner being too embarrassed to bring this up with a doctor is for him to go find himself a gay doctor. Find a gay GP, general practitioner. Go find a gay one because then he can bring up the fact that he got his ass fucked and may have an anal fissure without any embarrassment. That said, people have gotten anal fissures from having one giant, awkward, constipated Shit. So you don't have to – if your partner thinks he has a fissure, you don't have to go in there and tell the doctor the whole story about Sergio. If your partner can't be bothered to do the work of finding a gay doctor to go to, he can just go in there and plead giant, awkward, sideways shit and fissure. But I think he would be better off if he went to see a medical professional who could – Look at his butt, know what happened to his butt that he can be open and honest with about the ways in which he experiences anal pleasure and get the treatment that he needs. Anal fissures, they take a while to heal. There's a steroid cream that you apply that helps speed the healing. It is important that your partner get those meds and see a doctor that he can be honest with or you will never get to peg him as often as you would like or as often as he would like. Go get a gay doctor. Hi, Dan. My partner and I are in our 40s. He is in, into getting pegged and I'm GGG, but pegging is not my favorite activity. I ask him to make appointments to schedule those sessions so I can be prepared mentally to strap it on. I've been teasing him for months about getting him a cop cage. He finally agreed, but it seems to be an exchange for these pegging sessions. Then I realized that my cop cage turn on might have been more about the teasing than the object itself. That isn't to say that I'm no longer interested. So I'm calling because my sister suggests that my interest in the cock cage is tied to wanting to humiliate my partner. I think it's more about domination. She thinks domination and humiliation go hand in hand. I disagree. She challenged me to ask your opinion. So, Dan, what do you think? Does domination have to have a factor in humiliation? Humiliation, domination. Do they go hand in hand. They often do, not because they're welded together, but because 
Many people, if not most people, who get off on being dominated also get off on some degree of humiliation play about submitting, about being dominated. I would call them not linked kinks but adjacent kinks. But there are definitely some subs out there uh, who crave control and that's what you said. Caller turns you on about the thought of getting a cock cage for your boyfriend and they are proud to submit. They take pride in their – Submission, pride in submitting to a particularly hot top and some tops and you would be the top when you lock his cock up. Uh, you're also the top when you peg his ass. Some tops enjoy control. They don't enjoy having a cringing sub who is something less than a man but they enjoy this proud man, this strong man, this hot man ceding control, erotic control to them. And your boyfriend, when he – asks you to peg him when you schedule that in advance. He can brace yourself. The seating control of his ass to you and if he agreed to let you lock up his cock because that's something you would enjoy or fantasize about or would get off on, he's seating control of his cock to you and you can rub that in his face. You can tell him that he's a, you know, a pathetic sub and a pathetic guy who would let some woman lock his cock up in a cock cage like that to engage in this kind of chastity play and letting somebody else determine when he can get hard or if he can get hard or when he can get off, when he can have an orgasm. You can rub his nose in that and you can make it about the humiliation but you don't have to. It can also just be about the control. Both kinks are valid, domination, humiliation. When they're adjacent, they're valid. When somebody who enjoys one enjoys the other mixed up with it, valid. But you can definitely be erotically humiliated by someone who isn't dominating you. That's possible and you can be dominated by someone who isn't humiliating you. The person who knows best what this kink is about, this desire to lock your partner's cock up in a cock cage about is you. You have a better idea about what it is about that that makes you wet than your sister does. And if when you think about it, when you fantasize about it, it's purely about control. That's what arouses you about it. That's what interests you about it then it is about control. It doesn't also have to be about humiliation. It would be about humiliation if your sister were to do it to someone. She would, in locking some dude's cock up, if she's into dudes, see him submitting to that as humiliating. That would be an intrinsic part of it for her if this was something that interested her sexually. So what your sister is doing right now is projecting onto you how this kink would feel for her, how it would play out for her. And she shouldn't do that. I want to address uh, something else about your call, the, the seemingly transactional nature of this. Your boyfriend is into pegging. He likes to have his ass pegged. Not your favorite thing but you're happy to do that for him. You're not traumatized by it but you do want a little bit of a, a notice when that, that's what's on the menu so you can adjust your expectations for that night when you guys get together and you're going to focus on – his pleasure and it's not going to be about your pleasure and that's very giving of you. That's total GGG-ness and I support it. Now there's this thing. This thing comes along that interests you. You want to lock his cock up. You want to take control of his cock and maybe that's not his favorite thing but he's willing to do that for you. Some people would see that as transactional in a way that would skew it or ruin it or make it somehow – not loving and I, I reject that. It's not you do this for me, I do this for you but rather because you are generous and giving enough to do this thing that I enjoy that you could take or leave, I want to do this thing for you 
that you would enjoy that may not be something that I would initiate or that I thought of. That's not depressingly transactional. That's not cold or dehumanizing. That's being GGG for each other. That's being good lovers. That's both of you pushing yourselves outside your comfort zones a little bit, expanding your sexual repertoires a little bit so that you're more sexually fulfilled, both of you in the relationships. So you're more sexually compatible. You've you know come a little bit closer together. Sexually, you've demonstrated that you're able to take pleasure in giving him pleasure and he's going to demonstrate when he lets you lock up his cock that he is capable of taking pleasure and giving you that pleasure. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the tech savvy at risk youth. I'm a mid-40s straight woman and have been in a friends with benefits slash romantic friendship with a man in his early 40s for the past three years, of which the last two have been long distance. We visited each other a handful of times, we text almost every day, and occasionally partake in video sex. The last time we FaceTimed, we ended up masturbating together, and while the camera was positioned between my legs, I noticed he took a bunch of screenshots since FaceTime tells you when someone does this. Um, I was a bit surprised by it, but let it go at the moment. He had to get off the call immediately after we finished, so I didn't get a chance to bring it up right then and there. After thinking about it more, I messaged him the next day to tell him I thought he should have asked me before taking the screenshots and that I felt a little bit violated. Now, I've sent him risque and nude photos in the past. Nothing as explicit as the screenshots he took. And all the photos I sent him, I sent of my own free will and because I wanted to. He messaged back that I should have told him at the time I was bothered by him taking those screenshots, that I shouldn't have had the screenshot feature turned on if I didn't want the photos taken, um, which I didn't even know was a feature of FaceTime, and that I've now made him feel tainted and he no longer wants to continue the sexual aspect of our friendship. Dan, I feel a bit taken aback by him immediately turning to anger and trying to blame me for what I feel is a violation of trust. Am I overreacting to the situation since I didn't mention it right away? Am I being unreasonable and unfair by mentioning it the next day? And should I just chalk it up to being naive and putting myself in that position? There's no two-minute statute of limitations when it comes to someone doing something during a sexual encounter that makes you uncomfortable. You aren't obligated to bring it up in that instant or in the next 24 hours. You bring that up when you're ready to bring that up and sometimes a person has to reflect and think about what happened before they can articulate exactly what it was about it that made them uncomfortable. And so this asshole who has done you the favor of telling you he no longer wants to be sexual with you, which spares you from having to cut him off sexually, this asshole, yeah, he tried to blame you in that moment for his error of judgment or his presumption. You know, if he had responded when you brought this up, uh, if he had said, oh, God, I'm so sorry, I thought because you'd sent photos in the past that it wasn't an issue and that you knew that FaceTime had this feature and so, oh, my God, I, I should have asked. I'm, I'm so sorry. I shouldn't have assumed and I will delete all the photos and I, I apologize. If that's how he reacted and your sense was it was a sincere reaction and a sincere expression of 
regret and he unpacked his error in that moment, uh, again, sincerely, maybe you could have continued on with the sexual relationship. But that he pointed a finger at you, that he blamed you, that he tried to make himself the victim here because you didn't bring it up the moment it happened because you waited till the next morning to tell him you weren't comfortable with him taking pictures without first asking and if he had asked, maybe you would have been okay with it. Maybe not. Maybe the camera angle isn't a camera angle that you particularly relish the thought of there being photos out there forever uh, of you taken from that angle. And you would have said no. But you know, maybe you would have said yes. He's an asshole. He did something in the moment that he knew was wrong, that he knew that you might – object to and for selfish, self-serving reasons. He figured he would rather maybe ask for forgiveness at some point in the future if you objected rather than permission in the moment because he thought if he asked for permission, the answer might be no. And rather than get that no and not get the photos that he wanted, he just took them. And then when you put him in a position where if he wanted to continue to have access to you in this way, to continue to be sexual with you, he's going to have to apologize. He couldn't apologize and he blew up at you and got angry at you. Fuck this guy. What an asshole. You did nothing wrong here. I'm glad you objected. I'm glad you said something to him. I'm glad he's fucked the fuck off and removed himself from your life again, sparing you the emotional labor of having to cut him off and dump him yourself or not dump him. It's a friends with benefits arrangement, having to end the arrangement yourself. You're well rid of this asshole. Hi, Dan. I have a question for one of your medical contributors. I can't get a straight answer from people that I'm in contact with. I am a mother of two and I have some prolapse from uh, giving birth, specifically rectocele prolapse. And my husband and I are interested in exploring some anal play, but I'm not sure how to do that safely. Um, my PT told me to do whatever I did before, but she also said that the only way to fix it is surgery period and I don't really appreciate her outlook. So how can I play safely and not make it worse? Joining me by phone to help tackle this question, Tristan Tarmino, author of The Ultimate Guide to Anal Sex for Women and host of the Sex Out Loud podcast. Hey, Tristan, how are you doing? Okay, Dan, how are you? I'm all right. I'm hanging in there. Nancy and I were just talking about how some of this, you know, worldwide pandemic is have folded into our routines now, not that we're comfortable with it, but we're uh, getting used to it, I guess. The lockdown that never yeah. ends. The lockdown that never ends. I know, but every day feels a little bit like Groundhog Day. Yes, absolutely. I have a routine I've gotten now. into like this very particular, yeah, routine that normally my days are all different. And this, for the past five months, they've all been the same. I feel you. I am right there with you. All right, let's let's quickly do this call because there's actually something else I wanted to check in with you about uh, as I think people may be anticipating. Uh, but this question, you know, the caller asked for a doctor, but I wanted to talk to you because you wrote the book, Ultimate Guide to Anal Sex for Women. You talk to a lot of doctors. Sometimes talking to one individual doctor about something like this isn't as beneficial as talking to someone who's talked to a lot of doctors uh, about something like this. Because I think an individual doctor sometimes just wants to err on the side of caution as opposed to pleasure. And just tell you, no, don't risk it. Don't do that. Uh, so that's why I wanted to talk to you. 
Yeah, this is a tricky one. I mean, I did reach out to a really sex positive physician's assistant. I want to shout out Queer Meducation, which is a platform that helps uh, educate medical professionals about LGBTQIA plus issues. Um, She said that likely any colorectal doctor will tell you no. But she sort of passed it around to her colleagues and that, and they came to the conclusion that they wouldn't necessarily encourage it, but Mm -hmm. it might be okay. And, and I, I really, I do want to value like people's own knowledge about their bodies here, right? Like we, we need to listen to our bodies. And I think like, I don't know how bad the prolapse prolapse is. I don't know what kind of discomfort this person experiences, right? We didn't get a lot of detail on the call. And so it's tricky to sort of make a recommendation, but I do want people to listen to their bodies and see, I think that it doesn't hurt to try. You're not going to harm yourself further to try and see how it feels. But then I think we've got to take the message from the body and see how it feels. And if it doesn't feel right, if it doesn't feel good, stop. Don't grit your teeth and try to yeah. get through it or power through it. Um, zooming out for just a second, labor or, or birth-induced prolapse, what is that? Because I'm sure some oh, people right. don't know. And there are some people who watch anal prolapse videos on the internet where people are inducing it for pleasure, called rosebudding, but this is different. Yeah, it's funny because last year's um, Hump Festival had a video about it. Mm-hmm. It was like it was like the leather guys on a roof or on a deck of some kind. They were outside. Anyway, so people can <laughs> if people saw that now they know what it is. So yes. a prolapse is when I like to say it's like when your insides come out. So a rectal prolapse is when the inner lining of the rectum actually comes out the anus, and often this happens during childbirth because you're just you're pushing so hard and you're, and you're really like pushing the limits of all of those pelvic muscles. And so they sort, it sort of collapses, like the muscles holding everything inside weaken and collapse. And so the lining starts to come outside the body. Now people who induce uh, a prolapse, a, a rosebud for pleasure, um, th- those muscles aren't collapsing. The sphincter isn't injured. You're just pulling some your guts out. And I don't recommend this. And I actually don't, you know, uh, your kink is not my kink, but your kink is okay. Not that I'm implying this is your kink, Tristan, just, you know, that expression. But, you know, the, you, the guts pop out past the anal sphincter, which is no way injured. And then they're shoved back in. And I can't imagine, mm-hmm. uh, it must feel good to somebody because people do it on purpose. And there's plenty on Pornhub for people who are interested in following up. But what happens sometimes during childbirth is, as you said, the muscles collapse and there is an injury and it is a lasting injury. It's not just about popping that lining back up past the anal sphincters and everything's hunky dorky again. No. And also the caller said, you know, her doctor said the only way to correct it is surgery. And she was a little bit miffed about that, but actually that is the only way to correct it. You can do as much pelvic floor therapy as you want, but really the way to fix it is to have surgery. And it's not that risky of a surgery. And so part of me wants to say, go for the surgery if that's possible. 
and then give yourself lots and lots of time to recover. And then it's absolutely safe to have anal play. And play. Play is the operative word there, I think. Not intercourse. A lot of people, when they think about exploring anal pleasure, go right for getting pounded, you know, like they've seen people Mm -hmm. ass-fucked in videos. And there are steps you can take and pleasures you can explore, probably pleasures that the caller could explore right now, short of intercourse. Leave his dick out of it. There, you know, there are of still, a, a, you know, a billion nerve endings there around your anus that would respond to stroking, to, you know, lube, to maybe a vibrator, not shoved in, but laid across the, the anus. Um, and that kind of exploration could be possible for the caller now. And then maybe after the surgery, you could even then baby step to penetration with fingers, with toys, with a butt plug before you get to a deep dicking. And I think when a lot of people talk about, you know, wanting to explore anal, they're wanting to go from nothing's ever been in my ass except a turd on its way out to a deep dicking in an evening. And that's Mm -hmm. not wise. No, I actually think maybe a butt plug might be a good strategy here. Um, because you know, the, a butt plug is designed to sort of go in and stay in and give you that feeling of fullness, which some Mm -hmm. people really enjoy. And there's not a lot of in and out. I feel like a lot of in and out might actually irritate the prolapse, moving it around, jarring it around so much, but putting a butt plug in with warm up, with plenty of lube and then doing some other stuff, whether that's oral sex or a vibrator or spanking or whatever they're into. I think that might be a way to sort of care for the ass and also have a really good time at the same time. But wait, but not the butt fucking. If that's what her husband is interested in or if that's what she's interested in, your advice, and I think my advice too, would be to listen to your doctor, think about the surgery, get the surgery, and then tiptoe up to this very slowly. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, that's the call. There's actually something else I wanted to check in with you about. I wanted to talk with you about, which is, uh, you're an advocate for open relationships. You also wrote the the terrific book opening up, which is a guide to open or polyamorous relationships. Uh, you're a prolific writer and uh, speaker, and you talk a lot about, uh, polyamory and you and I famously in March of this year, uh, after the pandemic kicked off, we got on my show together and we officially canceled polyamory together. At least, (laughs) In-person polyamory, you know, getting together with partners you do not live with uh, and you aren't uh, quarantining with. And I just wanted to check in with you because this is going on and on and on. And now there's some advice from health departments, uh, you know, in British Columbia, in New York, in (laughs) some countries in Europe about how to safely uh, or as safely as possible have sex with people that you aren't sheltering with, that you don't live with, that you aren't quarantined with. And I'm wondering where you're at now on the poly is canceled thing. And if based on the the best advice we're getting from medical professionals now, um, we can loosen up and let poly people be poly people again. Well, I think back in March, I assumed we were all going to lock it down and be like 100% diligent about it. And then maybe we would be in a much different place than we are now. And right. we would have a coordinated federal response and the testing protocols would be put into place uh, that would allow us to open back up as they're opening schools right. back up in I Germany don't think, now. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that anyone 
anticipated that it would still be going on and we'd still be in this sort of gray area of some things are open, some things aren't. And, you know, I'm, I'm cautious because, of course, we've all heard that story on the news about someone having a family reunion and then 18 out of the 19 people there got sick, got COVID. Including people, right? I think I know the story you're talking about, including people who didn't go to the family reunion because they didn't want to get infected, but then got infected by people who did. Yes. So I'm not ready to say like everything's back to normal and just, just see your friends, but don't go to a big concert. But I think one thing that, you know, queers know and, and sex positive people know is, is about risk reduction, Mm -hmm. right? I think we're moving into a phase now that's not about abstinence as much as it's about really assessing the risks and deciding how you might reduce them. So I think now we have to consider who's at the highest risk, um, who is, you know, who has pre-existing conditions, whether that's your age or medical condition that would put you at higher risk to get COVID and to be very, very, very sick from COVID mm-hmm. and who um, is not. And then I think people really need to, to make these negotiations about their own personal like values and ideals. I mean, this is another thing that we've got to talk about and we've got to talk about it in a really direct and honest and specific way, um, which we're not always good at as Americans, especially when it comes to sex and relationships. Yes. You know, we like dodge the specifics. So I, I'm less interested in someone saying, hey, um, are you being safe? Okay, I'm being safe. Conversation closed. I want to get down to the nitty gritty. How many people are you interacting with on a daily basis, on a weekly basis? How many people have you had face-to-face contact with? How many people have you seen, but you've only worn masks with? I think we need to get down to the nitty gritty and, and really decide what are the risks here and are we willing to take them? And if you're in a polyamorous relationship, if you have multiple partners, what are you going to prioritize? Are you going to prioritize a degree of safety that allows your polycule or your polyamory group to, to get together, to return to some degree of normality in that polyamorous relationship? Or are you going to prioritize hanging out in bars and going to restaurants and hanging out with people who aren't being responsible or safe? Because if you can prioritize the latter, you're probably not going to be able to enjoy the former. No. And I think it's also, you know, it's a, it's a good opportunity. I think it's been for me a good, good opportunity to deepen these other ways that we can be intimate with people that aren't physical. I mean, two of my partners don't live in the same state as I live in. So I haven't seen them for six months. I'm so sorry. And that's really hard and it sucks. And, and also I'd have to travel to go see them, which is its own can of worms that I'm like not ready to deal with. So I think we've had to prioritize um, calling, connecting, Marco Polos, funny videos, texting in order to stay connected. And it's not the same thing. I, I totally recognize that. Um, but I, I just, I think this is ultimately temporary. Hopefully we will have a vaccine soon and things can, well, things, at least in terms of social face-to-face interactions can return to normal. Um, 
And it's easy to be pessimistic yeah. right now and, and see the, you know, the downside of everything because so much seems to be going to shit. But, you know, I was in LDRs, long distance relationships in the 80s. And the difference now in sustaining a long distance relationship, the tools we have at hand, thanks to the internet and social media, allow for so much more intimacy, including sexual intimacy at that great distance, that mm-hmm. it, it's just, you know, as much as it sucks not to be able to get together with somebody in person, whether they're on the other side of town and they're not, and your partner that you live with isn't comfortable with you seeing other people at the moment, or they're on the other side of the planet, the tools we have allow for so much more than what we were able, you know, the airmail letters we sent back and forth in the 1980s. So let's not take all of this, you know, particularly those of us who grew up with it, who are younger than I am, let's not take it for granted. As much as it sucks right now to be separated, there are ways to maintain intimacy and closeness that didn't exist 20 years ago. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think the one interesting thing is that those of us who did grow up in your and my generation is like, we've lived through another pandemic. Mm -hmm. And so we've had to learn how to negotiate safer sex and, and how to deal with HIV and AIDS. And what makes this different is that it's not just about who else you're having sex with, but it's like who else you're having contact with. Right. And the sexual risks, we've talked about this a lot because there's some eerie parallels and there's some stark differences. You know, with HIV AIDS, the risk you took was yours and the person that you slept with at that moment. And you could go home as I did, you know, I was 22, go home when I was living at home for a little bit to my mom. And she was at no risk of acquiring HIV from me based on what I'd done the night before. But now someone who goes out and hooks up, who goes home to the people that they live with, you're putting them at risk just by inhaling and exhaling and sharing the same space and breathing the same air and touching the same coffee pot. And so that their safety has to factor into your choices in a way it didn't with HIV AIDS. Exactly. Exactly. And, and I think for me, like erring on the side of compassion is always my first choice that I don't want anyone else to get sick and I don't want anyone else to suffer here so I feel like I'm being as cautious as I possibly can because it, some of these are life and death matters. Yes. Yes. And you can't know just from looking at someone whether they have uh, a condition, whether they have asthma, whether they're immunocompromised in some way that's not evident just by eyeballing them. So you can't assume that just because the people in your orbit are not 70 years old and don't have emphysema – that you're being reckless and not informing them and allowing them to make an informed choice about hanging out with you is without consequence because it could be very consequential. You could get someone that you love that you're close to very sick and they could die. You know, one of the things that's kind of blown my mind because you know, I keep, you know, I came out in like 1980 roughly and so right into the buzzsaw of HIV AIDS. So it's really hard for me not to see this pandemic and this virus through the, you know, the filter of all of that trauma. But the irony here is the advice we're getting about sex is sort of turned on its head because with HIV AIDS, you know, you got it from fucking, you couldn't get it from kissing. So kissing was safe and fucking wasn't unless you used protection. And even then there were risks. And now it's fucking is safe and kissing isn't. (laughs) That's the advice we're getting from health departments. Like don't kiss, don't go face to face, don't breathe on each other. But if you can find the right position or get yourself to a glory hole, you're good. So you're good. Right. 
it's unsafe <laughs> like to kiss and safe to fuck. Style, you don't even have to, like, you don't even actually have to look at the person. Just, you know, maintain right. your distance and get and, your dick in there and get out. And wear masks. And if they can be, you know, they can put their ass in the window and you can be outside the house while it's happening even better. <laughs> Tristan Taramino, author of The Ultimate Guide to Anal Sex for Women and Opening Up and host of the Terrific Sex Out Loud podcast. Thank you for jumping on the phone today. It's always great to reconnect. And so, wait, just for clarity, Polly isn't canceled anymore, but it's complicated. Even more complicated than Polly already was. Yeah, and we've just got to do risk assessment and risk reduction. Thanks so much. Thanks, Dan. Hi, Dan. Calling from San Francisco, 55-year-old gay man. Came out in my 20s. Um, I thought I had a caring mother accepted me for being gay. She has other gay people in her life. But then you get politics and this information and Facebook and all that shit in the middle. And look at what she posts on Facebook. I never cared that you were gay until you started shoving it down my throat. This is a forwarded message that she is forwarded. She didn't write it. Starting again. I never cared that you were gay until you started shoving it down my throat. And I never cared what color you are, so you started blaming me for your problem. And I never cared about your political affiliation until you started condemning me for mine. I never really even cared where you were born until you wanted to erase my history and blame my ancestors for your problems. You know I never even cared if your beliefs were different than mine until you said my beliefs were wrong. But now I care. My patience and tolerance are gone, and I'm not alone in feeling like this. There are millions of us who feel like this. And that was something my mother wrote. And I'm sad and disappointed. And I don't know how much she actually believes about it. She's never treated me bad because I was gay or, you know, I talked to her about my boyfriends and stuff. Anyway, I'm asking you for your advice on how to reply or not reply to somebody such as your mother that posts this. So your mom, you say, didn't write this, but she reposted it or forwarded it or whatever it is that people do on Facebook. I'm not on Facebook. That is also an option. I don't see what my family is posting or reposting or forwarding or doing on Facebook. I recommend it. But your mom put this out there and depending on what kind of relationship you have with your mother or whether you're interested in continuing to have a relationship with your mother, then you have to say to her, what the fuck? Mom, I follow you on Facebook. You posted this homophobic, racist, xenophobic screed to Facebook. You endorsed it. And so I'm wondering what the fuck, mom? And that's your entry point. Ask your mother to define what she means by I never had a problem with you being gay until you shoved it down my throat. What does she mean by that? What does she think that expression means? People don't mean that literally. No one who says that, oh my god, I wasn't fine with gay people until they started shoving it down our throats. They don't mean that gay people are literally shoving ourselves down their throats. <laughs> not physically possible, not a process they would survive to complain about. What they mean is gay people are living their lives publicly. Gay people are visible. Gay people aren't hiding anymore. Gay people aren't willing to pretend when we're dropping our husbands off at the airport that they're not our husbands 
We're not willing to pretend that we're just roommates and friends. And some people perceive that, you know, their inability now to live in a world where they can pretend that gay people don't exist even though they know that gay people do exist. They perceive that as having homosexuality shoved down their throats because we insist on living our lives and our loves just as publicly as straight people have always lived their lives and their loves. Start there. Start having a conversation with your mother about the chunk of that bullshit poem or whatever the fuck it's supposed to be that applies to you and walk her through what is hateful and frankly crazy and irrational about it. And once you get her to admit that, you know, gay people having husbands and being public with their affections in an appropriate way, there's something inappropriate about somebody kissing somebody goodbye at the airport. There is something inappropriate about somebody sucking somebody off goodbye at the airport. Nobody does that. No gay people do that. Once she admits that that's bullshit, you can then point out how some of these other stanzas in this shitty poem are also bullshit. Yes, your mother personally hasn't economically oppressed black people or people of color. She hasn't personally deprived African-American families of generational wealth. Systemic racism did that. And assuming your mother is white, and I'm assuming your mother is white if she's on Facebook and posting shit like that, systemic racism did that and all white people benefited from that process. In a way, we are collectively complicit, but we are not necessarily individually complicit. But you can't look at economically marginalized communities, communities largely of color, black communities in particular in the United States and think about Jim Crow and think about redlining and think about how black people were excluded from the GI Bill after the Second World War, I believe, and then not be able to wrap your head around the fact that black people are poorer as a result, generation to generation, then white people have less accumulated wealth because of these policies that were instituted by white people that benefited white people. So just go at your mother about the gay thing. Once you get her to concede that gay people kissing each other goodbye at the airport isn't shoving gay people down her throats or anyone else's throats, then work on some of the other things. If your mother is worth it. If you think she can be reached, if this is emotional labor that you are willing to do, have the the emotional bandwidth yourself to do, if not, if you just want to write her off, if she's just another dumb, crazy, old, white bitch who unfortunately is going to cast a ballot in November, you don't have to do it. You don't have to fight with your horrible, hateful crazy relatives. I think it is our responsibility as white people to challenge other white people on their racist, xenophobic bullshit. But sometimes the energy that it takes, the effort that it takes would be better applied to registering people to vote, would be better applied to other forms of activism that might actually create some change. You're in a better position than I am to know if your mother is a hopeless case. If she's hopeless, if there's no benefit in the long run to challenging her on this shit, don't. 
But do something to compensate for the fact that you aren't challenging your family members on this shit. Do something proactive. Write a check. Make a donation to Black Lives Matter in her name. Make sure she gets the card in the mail. Register people to vote. Help people get to the polls on election day. Do something if you're not going to challenge your mom. You know what? And even if you do challenge your mom, do those things too. All right. Before we get to response calls, let's read some of your tweets. Equatorial Kindu tweets. Come on, Dan. Maryland is not a former Confederate state. It was a slave state until 1864 and later a Jim Crow state. But Maryland never seceded and never joined the Confederacy. I stand corrected. While Maryland did not cover itself in glory, slavery, and then Jim Crow, on the subject of slavery, all U.S. states were complicit, all benefited. Still, not only wasn't Maryland a Confederate state, the citizens of Maryland actually voted to end slavery in 1864 in a referendum. That was a year after the Emancipation Proclamation ended slavery in states that were in the Confederacy, but a few months before the 13th Amendment ended slavery in every state. Interestingly, for our times, the vote to end slavery in Maryland was close. It was actually late-arriving absentee ballots that made the difference in Maryland in 1864, and those are the same kind of ballots Trump wants to prevent states from counting in 2020. Doug Threewit tweets, how about blessed wetness instead of vaginal secretions, Dan? Pronounced blessed, not blessed. All right, I've been talking about the lack of a good slang term for vaginal secretions for at least a year now. For seminal fluid, we've got jizz, spunk, spooge, nut, cum, and more. We've got more than 150 slang terms, according to one list I found on the internet. But if you think about what spunk, spooge, jizz, nut, and cum all have in common, Doug Threewit, you'll see why blessed wetness is unlikely to catch on for vaginal secretions. It's not a single-syllable word with a couple of fun-to-mouth consonants and a single vowel. And that ed in blessed lacks the percussive punch of the k in spunk or the zh in spooge. But all that's moot because I think the search for a good slang term for vaginal secretions ended recently. And Cardi B and Megan Three Stallion, they ended it. WAP. Wet-ass pussy. Now, in the song, WAP describes the condition of an aroused woman's genitalia, soaking wet. But just like cum has more than one meaning, it means both climax and ejaculate, and people can climax without ejaculating, obviously. I think WAP can and should be used to describe vaginal secretions, WAP, and the condition, arousal, of those substances being present. If indeed WAP hasn't been adapted already to describe vaginal secretions. So hats off to Cardi B and Megan Three Stallion for giving us finally – the term that we needed, the term we've been begging for for years, a one-syllable percussive slang term for vaginal secretions. Wap, wap, wap. And finally, Selah Moavi tweets, perfect birthday present to myself, the Magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast. Aw, thank you for subscribing to the Magnum, Selah Moavi, and happy birthday. Okay, if you want me to read your tweet on an upcoming episode of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to include the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And we really appreciate everybody who posts to social media platforms about the show. Helps get the word out. Helps attract new listeners. Thank you. All right. Now your response calls. Hi, Dan. I just wanted to call and thank you so much for recommending the HPV vaccine for men, even men who are married. My husband and I went to our local grocery store today to get our flu shots. And it turns out that most 
Pharmacy grocery stores also carry the HPV vaccine. So we were able to get our flu shots and get him started on the three round shots of HPV. So I would have not thought of it if it wasn't for your show. Hi, Dan. I'm responding to episode 726, specifically to the woman who's sending nude pics of herself to her ex. I have no judgment to this woman. I understand that she didn't know that he was married when this relationship began, the photo exchange. But as far as moving forward goes, I was surprised, Dan, that you seem to think that there was nothing wrong with this. For me, if my partner was secretly pursuing new and inspired in the current moment naked photos of his ex, I would 100% consider that cheating. He's facilitating a sexual relationship with her as far as I'm concerned because um, requesting, paying for, and receiving nudes from someone that he was once in love with That feels really, really dodgy to me. And I just imagine that if this woman who he's married to had any clue that that was happening, she would be incredibly upset. And I think if the goal is to just keep it from her and that makes it okay, that that doesn't make sense. The truth is the chances are they will be discovered and it will blow up and it will be a really hot mess. And I don't think anyone wants that. Hey, Dan, this message is for the girl who wanted to know why her boyfriend didn't have an erection while he was going down on her. I used to have and get erections when I was a lot younger, you know, when I was a teenager and in my 20s and I had testosterone flowing through me like crazy and maybe it was the newness of it. I would stay hard. And as I got older, I began to do a little bit less performing and a little bit more enjoyment for myself. And I would basically enjoy her and I would be more relaxed and I would lose my erection. But, you know, that erection would come back quickly after she'd go down on me or she would touch me or something like that. Or So it's really not odd or uncommon or any sort of sign that he's not into you. And we're going to leave it there. There are two ways to get us your questions or comments for a future episode of the Savage Lovecast. You can call us at 206-302-2064 and record your question or comment. Or you can use the Voice Memo app on your phone to record your question or comment and email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. You can also still catch the 15th Annual Hump Film Festival online. There's a few more screenings left. Go to humpfilmfest.com to get your tickets now. Now is also a really good time to get to work on your submission for the 16th Annual Hump Film Festival. Submissions are due December 4th, and along with big cash prizes, Hump shares a portion of all ticket revenues with the filmmakers who make it into the festival. So go to humpfilmfest.com slash submit to find out how you can make a dirty movie and make a little money. And the producers of Hump are launching a totally new and totally terrifying short film festival this October. Slay Film Fest starts on October 15th and runs through Halloween with two volumes of over 30 short horror films from all over the world. Go to slayfilmfest.com to get tickets and watch the trailer. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Tristan Taramino on Twitter at Tristan Taramino. And be sure to check out her podcast, Sex Out Loud. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian. And me and the techs have the at-risk youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week with our installment of the Savage Lovecast. 
Thank you for downloading. Please vote. Please wear a mask.